Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring, bringing insight into the history of supply chain management and exposing you to some of the industry's thought leaders and driving forces. In this episode, we sat down with Dr. Doug Lambert, the Raymond E. Mason Chaired Professor Emeritus at Fisher College of Business and Academy Professor at The Ohio State University and former director of the Global Supply Chain Forum. In part one of this two-part series, we discuss the original writing and development of the carrying cost concept currently in practice today. It all sounds pretty boring. Let's see if Dr. Lambert can prove me wrong. Dr. Lambert, thanks again for investing time with me to hear about your career and learn more about your perspective on supply chain management in general. Okay, well, initially, you, when we talked, you wanted to uh, talk about inventory carrying costs and how I decided to write uh, papers on inventory carrying costs. I grew up in Canada, I was born in Toronto, and I went to um, the Ivy Business School at Western University for undergrad and MBA. And so uh, that meant that I either had to get all three degrees from the same place, which isn't good form, or go to a school that wasn't as good in Canada. And so I looked at three schools in the US, Harvard, because it was kind of head office for the Canadian school, about half the faculty had Harvard degrees. I put in Texas for warm weather. I was even then thinking about a nice warm place and Ohio State. And I picked Ohio State because of Bud Lalonde, who was, was really one of the giants in this business. He passed away um, a year or so ago. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to do was, so I taught for a couple of years with an MBA to see if I was going to like it before I invested in this PhD. And uh, I picked Ohio State because of Bud Lalonde. I, I worked with him as a research assistant. And I had a plan to get a PhD as quickly as possible. I wanted to get a two-year PhD and get back to Canada. And where people lose time in the PhD is not on the coursework, because the coursework disciplines people. But, you know, you got papers due, you got classes you have to go to. Where people lose time is at the dissertation. They might waste the whole year trying to figure out what the dissertation topic is. And so my idea was whatever idea I had at Christmas of my first year in the PhD program, I was going to spend the time I had free over Christmas getting going on a dissertation proposal, starting to write it. And the only idea I had by Christmas was inventory carrying costs. And Lalonde had another PhD student working with him that fall. And he had two projects. He had one on customer service, which I really wanted to do because I, I'd done some work like that in, in Canada before coming for the PhD. Uh, but the other PhD student didn't know the difference between a debit and a credit. And I'd taught accounting for a couple of years uh, to see if I was going to like teaching before I went for the PhD. So guess who got the carrying cost topic? So it was the only topic I had at Christmas. I, so I talked to Lalonde and Robeson and Grabner, who were going to be my dissertation committee, and said, would this make a dissertation? And they agreed it would. And so if I was going to stick to plan, this had to be it. And I did complete my PhD, actually, uh, a week. I was a week over the two years and graduated in the fall that year. So I was actually two years plus a quarter till I actually walked away with a degree in hand. But the more I got into the topic, working with companies, the more excited I got about it, right? And because they thought it was useful. And I actually received the doctoral dissertation award from... Um, 
what was then called the National Council of Physical Distribution Management for my dissertation. And it was one of the two in the whole history of the organization. Now, after NCPDM was called CLM and now the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals. So in the history of this organization, they published two PhD dissertations as books and mine was the first one because it was useful and, and business people could, could read it and, um, and actually use what was there. So that's how I got into the topic. What I ended up finding out about it was in most books for an EOQ formula or any other use of a carrying cost, people just throw in 25%, right? And in fact, why Lalonde was interested in the topic was he had another PhD student, Jeff Karenbauer, working on a logistics model, right? A, a network model for Ross Labs division of Abbott in Columbus. And they needed a carrying cost. And so that's how I got the topic. So I ended up a lot of luck, right? Because I had really no interest in the topic to start with. And then it turned out I won a competitive national award for the dissertation and they published it as a book, which got me a lot of visibility as a young guy starting a career. The thing I found out about it was two things. One is the biggest component of the carrying cost is the opportunity cost of money. It's what would I do with the cash if it wasn't an inventory, right? And if you're a cash rich company, you've got, you know, a hundred million in treasury bills or something then if you reduce inventory, you're likely to just buy more treasury bills with, with the cash generated. So the opportunity cost of money in that case is whatever you're earning on T-bills. On the other hand, if you would add a new production line in your factory that you're not adding now because you're short of working capital, then the rate of return you're losing by having that inventory is the rate of return you'd earn on that equipment if you had it. Or if I was a retailer and I had less inventory in my warehouses, I can't get less inventory in my stores because the stores have to look like they're stocked, right? I, mean, I think the retailers call it product dominance. You, when you walk into that store, you have to feel like if these guys don't have it, nobody's got it, right? So you can't see empty shelves. So, so it's gotta be warehouse inventory. But, but if I could reduce my warehouse inventory then, and that allowed me to open uh, another new store, then it's the rate of return I own earn on the new stores. So it's not just an average number. It, it's whatever it's going to be for your company. Then the other thing I found was there are three rules of good financial management. One is you get the cash. Two is you get the cash. Three is you get the cash, right? So the book value of inventory isn't the important number. It's the cash value of the inventory. And if you're a retailer and you sell something and don't replace it, which would be how you'd get an inventory reduction, you save the current replacement cost, which is probably close to what you paid for it and what you're carrying inventory for on your books. And if it's a raw material in a manufacturing environment or a component part, and you reduce component part inventories, you buy less this month, then you're gonna to need to get those inventories down then at the end of the month or 60 days from now, whenever you pay the bill, the bill would be less and cash would go up by the bill you didn't pay, right? But where this gets more complicated is that every manufacturer overstates the value of inventory from a cash standpoint because they full cost. They put all these overhead costs in that have got nothing to do with making a unit of product 
right? Now, again, think about this. If you're somebody who wants to either increase or decrease inventory, and you're a manufacturer, and you're not General Motors. I mean, if you're General Motors and you want to reduce inventory, you have a fire sale, right? You offer $5,000 discounts, free financing, right? And the, the, the classic was that summer, it was a number of years ago now when Wagner was still running GM, where they made everybody in this great land a GM employee for the summer. Anybody in the U.S. could buy a new GM car for employee cost because they had so many cars in inventory, right? They built these cars, nobody was buying. And so they sold the cars. They lost something north of a billion dollars that quarter. And then it was a shock to them the next quarter that sales were off 25% on the new models. Like people who just got out and bought a new car during the summer were going to line up and buy another one because they'd made a model change, right? I mean, you just wonder why there was no institutional learning in that industry. The sad thing was the board didn't fire Wagner. It was the government when they bailed them out, right? So if you're not General Motors and you're not going to have a fire sale to get an inventory reduction, what do you do? You make less this month than you're going to sell. I mean, mostly every month you'll make what you're going to sell, right? You try to do that. You might make more, you might make less, but the point is... You try to make what you're going to sell. And so this month, if we're trying to get our inventory down by $10 million, we'll make $10 million less product. Now, those product costs are made up with costs like security guards on the factory gate. Security guards, you know, the fence you got around the factory, the chain link fence with the barbed wire on the top and the security guards in the gate have got nothing to do with how much product you make in that factory. They've got everything to do with how important you think it is to protect what was what is going on in that factory, right? So you tend to see more fences around factories in South America than you do in the U.S. But those security guards get paid every month, regardless of what you make in the factory. And yet those costs, along with the plant manager's salary and a whole lot of other fixed costs, get spread across units like they're variable costs, right? If you're on a standard cost system, you estimate ahead of time how many units you're going to sell. And then you spread all these fixed costs across units. Treat them like they're variable costs, but they're not. They're period costs. And so if you make less units this month, you're go, you're gonna, you've paid the security guards what they always get paid per month, right? The full amount. But you've only got inventoried a portion of that. Inventoried or in cost of goods sold because you made fewer units this month. So what happens to the money you paid that isn't accounted for in inventory or cost of goods sold? It's a journal entry adjustment to cost of goods sold. You jack it up by the overhead that's underabsorbed, right? They call it underabsorbed plant overhead. So it would be fixed costs related to machinery. It would be the plant manager's salary. It would be the security guards at the gate. So then if I'm a high fixed cost operation, maybe only 50% of my product costs are variable, which means if I reduce inventory by 10 $10 million, I'm only going to free up $5 million. And it's important to understand that because presumably you'd work harder to get a $10 million reduction than you would a $5 million reduction, right? And it gets even worse than that because labor might be a variable cost when I'm figuring out how profitable my customers are or how profitable my products are. And the idea there is that I might have a, a thousand people working in my plants, but they're not a variable cost. They're a step fixed cost, except the steps are small. And so if I stop selling to Walmart, or if I stop selling certain SKUs, I can let some employees retire, leave for better jobs, 
my labor force will come down and I may actually save those, those costs. So treating them as variable costs in that sense is not a mistake. But in the case of the one-time inventory reduction, it's a big mistake because the labor cost isn't saved. I mean, I was in Izmir, Turkey, you know, a dozen years ago and visited a Hugo Boss plant. And they had this fleet of vehicles to bring people in to work in that operation. It was a cut and sew, high, high labor content operation. Very low turnover those because these were good jobs. And the Turkish government said, you can work them more than 40 hours a week if you like. Of course, you pay them for it, but you can't work them less than 40 hours. They get paid for it whether they work it or not, right? So even in Turkey, labor wasn't a variable cost. So if, if we make less product this month and we send the plant home at noon on Friday, we don't save that labor cost at all. And so now we're down to variable cost of material, variable packaging costs, electricity to run the machinery, and maybe we save some maintenance costs if we're not running it Friday afternoon. But the, the point is, inventory from a cash standpoint in every manufacturing company in America is overvalued. And I think people work too hard for inventory reductions for the cash they're actually freeing up. Inventory is a big part of supply chains. That's, that's, that's why people tend to focus on it. But you know, you, you run real lean and then you see empty shelves like we did with the paper towels and COVID, right? You know, it would seem to me that that paper towel operation, I mean, is probably uh, not a high labor cost operation. It's probably high fixed cost to start with. So maybe having a little extra inventory, even though your books look like you're carrying more money, if you look at the actual cash value of that inventory, it may not be so bad. Maybe having a little extra isn't a bad idea. So those are the two things. You know, what's the opportunity cost of money? So again, if you're a cash-rich company, you've got all kinds of money in the bank, getting a little more cash from an inventory reduction uh, isn't going to bring you much income. And so uh, if you're using 25% as a carrying cost, man, you're really overstating it. And if you're applying it to full cost of the inventory value, wow, then you're really wrong. So your objective with, with your, what do you call it, a thesis or what was it? The well, it was to first of all, understand what, invent what were the components of inventory carrying costs. And the big part of it is getting the cash value of the inventory right and determining the opportunity cost of money. Now, the other things like insurance taxes, obsolescence damage, you know, relocation costs because you've... Uh, uh, you got inventory in the wrong place, right? So you got bathing suits in Ohio and it's now the fall. So you ship them to Florida so you can sell them at, at full price. That kind of relocation cost. Typically, those costs are one, two, three, maybe 4%. And the, the, the big one was when, when capital was in short supply was the opportunity cost of money because you might have a hurdle rate in the company of 15 or 20% on new investments. Well, that's an after-tax hurdle rate. All the trade-offs you're making with inventory are before tax. So you have to take that after-tax cost of capital hurdle rate and divide it by one minus the marginal tax rate. And, and so if your marginal tax rate was 50%, then that 15% hurdle rate becomes 30 cost of money for inventory or 40 if it's 20% uh, cost of capital you're looking for in a company. But those were in the days when money was in short supply, right? And I saw more of that in the 70s and 80s than today, where a lot of these big companies are sitting on a fair bit of cash, right? So it depends on your situation. If you've got debt, you'd pay off. 
then it's the interest on the debt. The debt interest is already before taxes. The interest you get on money in the bank, your T-bills, is a before tax number. You have to pay tax on that. But the minimum acceptable rate of return on new investment that, that companies ask you to want to get if you want to make an investment, that's an after-tax rate. Because what they have to do is, is look at cash flows over a period of time and discount them back to a net present value, including the tax implications of depreciation. So, so that's another mistake oftentimes people make is uh, they don't convert that cost of money uh, to a before tax cost of money because everything you're trading off with it, set up in the plant, setups in the plant, transportation costs, those are all pre-tax numbers. I mean, you don't get your freight rates quoted to you after taxes. Now, Doug, you, you did this in 1975, 76, you started this, is that? Well, I actually started it in, in the fall of 73 as a PhD student and okay. finished it up in, in, uh, in 75. That was my PhD dissertation. And we worked with a half of the, well, actually seven on um, helping them develop a carrying cost. Dracket Products Division of Bristol-Myers in Cincinnati. Ross Labs uh, Division of Abbott in Columbus, uh, Heinz in Pittsburgh, Ralston Perina in St. Louis. I, I, oh, and then Hooker Chemical had one process company in there. It's, it's interesting. This was over 40 years ago, and you're talking about it like it was yesterday. Well, you know, the interesting thing of, about it is my mentor always used to say, you know, work on a research project, you can put a presentation together and present to executives, right? Because college professors don't pay you to present, business people will. Or if you do a presentation in their company or they invite you for one of their meetings as a keynote, then you get paid well. And, and so I was lucky. This was not a topic I'd have picked, right? But if I was going to stick to my plan to graduate in two years, it was the only idea I had at Christmas, and I was going to lose time if I didn't move forward on it. I wasn't stupid about it, though. I asked my mentor and the two other committee members if they thought it would make a dissertation topic. They said it would. But, but over the years, as I've taught logistics programs for companies, there's always the session on inventory carrying costs. It's still something people care about. It's a key part of the APEX body of knowledge, which you're familiar with in all programs, CSCP, CLTD, and CPIM. I talk about it in every class. We have examples of how, you know, you look at transportation costs and, and timing. And we always give the example of cost. I'll make up the numbers, Doug. It costs $1,000 to ship it via air from Asia, or you can put it on a ship and, and, and you know, coming air, it'll take a week. Put it on a ship, it'll cost you $100, but it'll take a month. And most people look at the numbers and they say, okay, we'll put it on the ship. It'll be cheaper. What they fail to realize is that carrying cost component. That's a, that's a big factor. I guess you call that right. the trans and, and, transportation. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess if these are things you're buying that are completed pro products or their, their uh, products components that are going into something you're making, whatever you're paying for them is the cash value of them. So it's harder for companies when they're looking at the carrying costs of what they've manufactured and are selling because they look at the book value, which isn't the cash value at all. You know, as we said before, it's overstated because of all these fixed costs we've added on. And that if you have an inventory reduction, you don't save those fixed costs. They simply show up as uh, underabsorbed plant overhead and you jack up cost of goods sold by the uh, those costs that weren't covered in inventory or units sold. So 
So you don't free it up in cash. And it's important to recognize that. But but you're right. I mean, and, and I guess the other thing is you wonder how many times when people go offshore looking at lower labor costs, they've really considered all of the costs, right? Yeah, that's a key theme for what we talk about in class. But for any any APIC students listening, we basically there's three components. You've, you've talked about them, and they're in your paper for all three bodies of knowledge, storage, storage costs, capital costs, and the risk cost. Now, you, in your paper, you talk about inventory service costs which I think is taxes and insurance as well, but that, that's a part of the risk. In most of the world, taxes is a non-issue. That's an American phenomenon where you pay ad valorem property taxes on yeah. inventory. I can remember there was a time when in California, this is when I was a PhD student, California would charge those taxes based on inventory on a particular date. And so what companies would do is they'd send their inventory on vacation. They'd put it in trailers and ship it in Nevada or put it in a ship and send it out in the Pacific. So it wasn't there during that date, and therefore they paid lower taxes. But I think the government finally figured it out and based it on average inventory. Well, I think it's interesting just to have found you. As I said, I, you didn't create the concept. You, I looked at your research, and you said it had been around for 10 years, probably back to the 60s. But what you did is kind of formalized it and created those categories. So that's pretty impressive. Well, you know, the other thing about the warehousing costs is the distinction between public warehouses, where they charge you for storage and handling, and a company-owned warehouse, the majority of the costs are going to be fixed. So the, the only costs you're interested in are the ones that are going to vary if you have more inventory in that warehouse or less inventory. I suppose if the warehouse gets crowded, it might create complications for picking and require higher labor costs. But if you're reducing inventory and, and you're spending overtime in the warehouse, then and you eliminate that warehouse uh, or that, that overtime because the warehouse isn't full of product and it's easier to pick, then, uh, then that labor cost would be saved. But the public warehouses make it easy for you because they charge you for the storage. And it's only the storage component that goes into carrying costs. The handling you pay on every unit that moves through the place. This concludes the carrying cost discussion with Dr. Doug Lambert. Be sure to check out part two where Lambert covers his perspective on what supply chain management is and the importance of true partnerships. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now network. We highlight historical events, companies, and people in supply chain management and create a picture of where the industry is headed. Interested in learning more about supply chain technology startups, mergers, acquisitions, and how companies evolve? Take a listen to Tequila Sunrise, crafted by Greg White. Or check out This Week in Business History with Supply Chain Now's own Scott Luton to learn more about everyday things you may take for granted and pick up short stories you can use as general conversation starters. The Logistics with a Purpose series puts a spotlight on neat and interesting organizations who are working toward a greater cause. If you're interested in logistics, freight, and transportation, take a listen to the Logistics and Beyond series with the Adapt and Thrive Mindset Sherpa, Jamin Alvarez. And check out the newest program, Tech Talk, hosted by industry veteran and Atlanta's own, Corinne Bursa. Versa will discuss all things digital supply chain. If interested in sponsoring this show or others on Supply Chain Now, send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. And remember, supply chain is boring. <laughs>